Well, we are in the book of First um, Corinthians, and I'm just going to jump into it here this morning. There is an issue that is going on throughout the church, and Paul spends a whole unit, chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 21, addressing this issue. And it, it is a, a misunderstanding or a misapplying of the gospel of the crucified Jesus Christ. And they are looking at the gospel through a very shrunken lens instead of seeing the magnificent glory of what it means to serve a crucified and risen Savior. And one of the things he lays out earlier in chapter 1 was they are exalting their favorite church leaders and they're looking down at others. They're splitting up Christ and His body. They're, they're being divisive. They're, they're arguing. They're, they're thinking that they can make the gospel of the crucified Messiah more palatable and polished to the world. They thought that it couldn't hold up to the public opinions and needed improvement. And Paul has dismantled their arguments against it. And, and, and now in chapter three, he's addressing out of their gospel roots, the good news of Jesus crucified and risen for the world. He is addressing out of the gospel roots, their man worship of different leaders. So in first Corinthians three, one through four, we saw last week the problem. We are either living, if we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, bought out of the slave market of sin, purchased for his treasured possession, we are either people who are living like people of the Spirit. In other words, we are people in whom God himself dwells through his Holy Spirit. We are either living like people of the Spirit, or we are not. And so in chapter uh, 3, 1 through 4, we saw the problem. And in chapter 3, 5 through 9, we're going to see the correction. Um, the problem was that they were, they were not living like people of the Spirit, and Paul will have nothing to do with that. He will say, you've been bought, you've been purchased, you will live as what God has done for you, that you are people of the Spirit, people of the Spirit of God dwells in, so live like that. And now in verses 5 through 9, he's going to correct the problem, and his point will be that God is in charge of his tools. God's in charge of his tools. What I'd like us to see here this morning is in verse 5 where Paul says, Who then is Apollos? Who, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. Is that God's leaders are simply serving tools. They are tools of service that God uses to build belief in Him. In other words, Christian leadership in the church is simply servant leadership. The people that God chooses to use are only servants. When Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 9, <clears throat> chapter 3 and verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? The word who there is actually oh, um, a, 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 ten, a, a case in the, in the Greek called the neuter case. There's, there's male, there's feminine, and there's a neuter case. And what this word actually means, who, is what is Paul? What is Paul? What is Apollos? Or nothing. He doesn't even say uh, uh, that he's not even uh, referring to them as people. He's, he's referring to himself and to this other fellow teacher, Apollos, as simply being tools in the hands of God. And friends, this tells us a few things here. That if God's leaders are simply tools that God has given us to build belief in him, to build trust, to build faith in him, then, then servants they are and that, that is what they are and no more. Servants, he gives to all believers to bring them to faith in his son. 
Apollos was a, a Jew from Alexandria in the Mediterranean world. He served the church in Corinth after Paul left. Paul planted that church in Acts chapter 18, and then he spent 18 months establishing the believers in the faith. Then after he left, there were other teachers who came by to strengthen the church. Apollos was one of those. He was a very gifted man. Apollos was very eloquent. He had been in Ephesus where Aquila and Priscilla had recognized that he needed some more training and that he helped him. And then he became a very powerful tool in the church. But that's what he was, a tool. And so Paul is not seeing Apollos as a rival simply because Apollos has different gifts. Rather, he's saying that we are only servants together. What is Paul's? What is Paul? What is Apollos? And the answer is, we're servants. We're servants that God used to help you come to faith, come to belief in the first place. We're only servants. And we're servants that God has assigned a certain task to. And so that's Paul's understanding here of what Christian ministry is. And friends, if you want to be great by the world's definition, find something else to do besides Christian ministry. In fact, let me show you further on in 1 Corinthians 4 how Paul describes Christian ministry. The glamour that you see on TV of Christian ministry isn't real. It's fake. Christian ministry is hard. Paul describes it as warfare, as being a soldier of Jesus Christ. And look how he describes it in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, right right across the page. Paul says, For I think that God has set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle to the world and the angels and the men. And some of you might be thinking, oh, that would be awesome to have all the attention of the world. Made a spectacle, but this is the spectacle he's talking about. Look what he says in verse 10. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, we are despised. Paul here is pointing out that the direction they are going is receiving applause from the world rather than a pushback. And true ministry receive, will receive a, push, a pushback from the world. It, it, it doesn't taste good. In verse 11, he says, Even to this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place, no home. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it, we allow it. Being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring, that's the refuse or or the dirt you scrape off your plate, the offscouring of all things to this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. That's Christian ministry. How do you like that? That's, that's, that's the, that's the portrayal here of what Paul says Christian ministry is. And so if you want to be great by the world's definition, Paul says, don't choose Christian ministry. Find something else to do. If you want to use God's ministry as a platform to build yourself up or or your brand, God doesn't have very much patience for that. And there are carcasses strewn all over the 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 the, the uh, uh, place of of Christianity of people who use ministry to build their names up and build their brand. And we're going to look a little bit further into that in chapter three um, next week, and what that looks like when it's all said and done. 
But the New Testament talks about false teachers that often infiltrated the early church. And one thing they have in common in their descriptions and the apostles' letters of warning to the early church is what the, was that they were in it for their own material benefit. In other words, they were using ministry as a stepping stone, a means of advancement. It became a way for them to, uh, uh, to build their own name. There is an NBA player who played for many years with the Lakers and then I think with the, with the Phoenix Suns. His name was A.C. Green. And uh, he was known as the NBA's Iron Man because he played consecutive games without missing a game due to injury. And he, uh, he said uh, when he was at Benson High School in Portland, Oregon, he was a sports-minded, egotistical maniac. He was the tallest guy in his team and he could have broken scoring records, but his coach Gray wouldn't let him. And even with the brakes on us, Coach Gray kind of holding back on what uh, what uh, A.C. Green's scoring potential was. Twice that year, A.C. Green scored 39 points. And in the season finale in the state championship against <clears throat> um, Wilson High School, he scored 40 points. And he averaged 27 points per game. As a team, high school team, they averaged more than 100 points in seven games. Uh, they scored more than 100 points in seven games and averaged over 90, which is quite a feat in high school basketball, and he was voted the um, All-Metro Area Player of the Year and then the All-Metro Team. But his coach, Coach Gray, wouldn't allow him to be a hot shot scorer because he was more interested in the final stat. He knew that the only way we could reach that championship level, A.C. Green said, was for us to become team players. And friends, in, in basketball and in life, Everybody starts out with a what's in it for me attitude, don't they? But friends, when you came to Jesus Christ, that got slain at the cross. That was crucified at the cross. And you could say with Paul the Apostle, nevertheless, it is not I that live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Our natural selfishness has to be crucified at the cross. And we begin to realize in the Christian life that I can't do it all by myself. I need Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit. And you know who else I need? I need you too. I need each other. I need the body of Jesus Christ. E.C. Green said, Coach Gray made me pass the ball and play unselfishly. And regardless of individual stats, we the team reached the top. We went all the way. And here's what Paul's saying in chapter 3, verse 5. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? We are but servants, ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul here is telling his, uh, showing his understanding of his relationship to the Lord and the gospel. He's God's servant. And if he's God's servant, then he's God's servant of the message, the gospel, the good news. And friends, this shouldn't be very foreign to us because this is how Jesus Christ lived his life. Jesus Christ lived for 30 years in obscurity in a little, little, little rural village called Nazareth. It was a small village, but it was also a village that had a certain kind of a sense to it that the rest of Israel kind of looked down on. So much so that then when they heard that this prophet or this, 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 this speaker, Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem, they say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? They're questioning that. 
And Jesus shows that he is among them as one who serves. And his ultimate expression of serving was giving his life a ransom for many. And that is the understanding of leadership through Jesus. See, the, the, the world understands leadership as I'm standing on the backs of everybody else. And leadership in Scripture is the leader is pushing and pulling with everybody else here to get the job done. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, where Paul says, Who then is Apollo and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believe, even as the Lord gave to every man? What he's saying is this. Those of you who are our servant leaders in the church, you are recognized leaders in the church, you understand that you are a servant. And those of you who are under their leadership, you are to certainly honor and esteem their position, as 1 Timothy 5 says, for their work's sake. But you are not to idolize or find identity in any leader. You are forbidden by the gospel of Jesus Christ to find your identity in any spiritual leader. Simply put, leaders in Christ's church are just signposts that point to Jesus and point you to Jesus. Anything else Paul is saying here is worldly thinking. It is a thinking of this present evil age. And friends, Christianity is plagued with Christian celebrityism. It is plagued with it. Um, Christian personalities may be how people define themselves, but friends... God's opposed to that because it robs him of the glory that he alone deserves. Certainly there are people who are gifted, but those gifts have been given by the giver. And those gifts have been given for a purpose to build up the church. And those gifts have been given to reflect God's glory back to him, not to shine the glory on ourselves. So really what he's saying here is an emphasis upon personalities adds up to worldliness. Listen, as long as Christians are saying, I'm of a Paul, or I'm of a Paulus, or Cephas, or Wesley, or Calvin, or whatever Christian leader today, making some Christian leader the prime point of their identification, they do not truly grasp the nature of gospel ministry. And that's why Paul spends two chapters, three and four, clearing this up. The second point is this. Verse 6 and 7, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Here, here are four observations from these two verses. Paul is saying there are some that plant churches. They have a pioneering role. There are some that come after and they water the seed, they water the churches that were planted. They are simply different laborers or different roles in this picture of God's field, God's vineyard. But when it all comes down to it, God alone is the one who makes it grow. Listen, both are necessary. You need planting, you need watering, right? And verse 6. But Christian service and service together in Jesus' church is not a rivalry of this ministry against this ministry or this person's skill set instead of gifts and this person's skill set instead of gifts. It's not a rivalry. And all the workers and all their labor means nothing without the blessing of God. It means nothing. 
The emphasis here in these verses is on God and not the laborers. He's giving, um, he's giving dignity to what himself and Apollos do, but his point is to direct it to God. Paul and Apollos were their only servants who did their assigned tasks. It's God who gives life to the efforts. And even the faith of these believers in verse 5 was a gift from God. And it is wrong to center attention on the servants. Instead, Paul says, look to the Lord of the harvest. He's the source of the blessing. God is the source of growth. No man can take the credit. When it's all said and done, whatever God does through this sermon, or whatever He does in various other uh, uh, teaching ministries or, or, or other leaders, when it's all said and done, whatever growth comes from those ministries is from God. It's not because of that person's skill set. Yes, God may use that person's skill set. He'll use their strengths. And 1 Corinthians 12 will tell us He delights to do that. But whatever comes from it, those are just plantings and waterings. The growth comes from God. It comes from God. The Corinthians had forgotten in their hero worship and their quarrels that the Christian leaders they were dividing over were simply tools from the garden shed in the master's hand. They were working in the field of the Corinthian lives. They were applying the word of God to them. They were a team. They were not rivals. They, they were a part of the process, but that's just it. They were part. No one church leader is all of it. Their, their efforts and their ministry are only successful because God is the one who makes it grow. And so Paul lays out here this agricultural picture, this farming picture here. Um, in a large farm, one person may plant the seeds, right? He's going down the line, he's going ahead. The other person's coming along behind him and they're watering it. Um, and, and to keep unqualified and exclusive praise on the one who's planting is just ridiculous, isn't it? Wow! Look at him planting. That's just amazing. And the other guy is coming behind with a watering can or the hose. Wow! Look at the skills there, right? It's ridiculous. To, to praise those who handle the, the irrigation... And, and those who, who plant the seed is, is, to, is to be looking like this. You're missing the point. This is just part of what God uses to bring growth. But God brings the growth. God alone makes things grow. So why shouldn't He be praised? And we all know here in this natural world, spring's coming to us and more fullness and gardening is getting in the full swing and you're going to you're going to till the soil, you're going to move out rocks, you're going to strategize where to put your different seeds depending on where they, what they need for shade or sun and their harvest schedule and then you're going to plant that seed. And you're going to keep it watered, you're going to make sure the pH level is what it needs to be for that specific plant and the parts of the environment you can control, you can you you control them. But in the natural world that's all you can do, right? You can't make it grow. You can't yell out to the sun, all right, turn it on, right? You can't control the rain. I recognize with today's technology here, you can use your hose, right? But you pray for God to do what only He can do. And friends, that's what Paul's saying here. So it is with Christian ministry. The church is like a field. It's like a field. We tend, but we can't make it grow. God uses different workers. We pray to the Lord of the harvest to make it grow to fullness and fruitfulness. 
We trust that workers are using their different gifts and they're applying their gifts to the seed in God's spirit. But we have to trust God to make it grow. There are no gimmicks. There are no uh, bait and switch uh, uh, plans that make this happen. It is God who makes the growth happen. Some of you might remember um, one of the popular ads in the 2011 Super Bowl was a, was a Volkswagen ad. And I think it was a, a Jetta, Volkswagen Jetta, but it pictured a, a kid. He was dressed in a Star Wars Darth Vader costume, and he's attempting to use the force around the house. And the, the, the Star Wars music played, and Darth Vader's uh, in the back uh, voice, or, or uh, breathing in the background, and the boy marches down the hallway, and he raises his hands dramatically toward the dryer in the utility room, and nothing happens. And then he points his hands down at the family dog who's lying on the door, uh, on the floor, and nothing happens. The dog kind of looks up, and but nothing happens. And, and this little boy, Darth Vader, in the suit, he doesn't give up. He goes in the bedroom, and he raises his hands toward his sister's doll that's seated on the bed. And the doll's just looking at him with doll eyes, not moving, not budging an inch. And his arm, and he's kind of like this. And then, in the kitchen... He's in costume there, and he stands at the counter, and he's got his black helmet on his head, and his father pulls into the driveway, and little Darth Vader runs to the car as his father walks in the house, and, he, and it's like a light goes on in his head, and he, and, and, and he hasn't given up. And one more time, he raises his hands, and he points them at this, at this Volkswagen car, and he waits, his hands upraised, and the car's yellow turn signal lights up, and the engine starts. Because his dad had the push-button ignition on his key, right? And he sees that. He's like, wow, you know, here's success here. He stumbles backward. But the dad had started the car himself using from he's standing in the kitchen watching his, his son. And, and, he, and, he, and he starts it himself. And this kid walks, whirls back to the house, back to the car. And that ad there really illustrates what exactly we're talking about here. This is the fundamental principle of God's invisible kingdom. This kid could do nothing without the intervention of his father. So neither can we. We work, we labor, but we're trusting God. We do it in faith. We're laboring in his ways. We're, we're trusting him. Uh, uh, when, when spiritual things happen, friends, you can be assured that it wasn't you that did it. You can be assured. God may use you, but he's the one who did it. Now look in verse 8. Now he that plants and he that waters are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So if God gives leaders different roles, but he's the one who makes anything happen to it, then what's the point of these who plant and water? And here's the third point here. The leaders that God gives have one united purpose, but they're going to be judged individually. There's unity here, but there's diversity. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 4, because Jesus expresses the same idea in John chapter 4, verse 34. And in John 4, he's not talking about the one who plants and waters, he's talking about the one who plants and then the one who harvests. So in John 4... Verse 34, Jesus says, 
My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not you there yet four months and then comes harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. Now notice this. And he that reaps, he, the harvester, receives wages and gathers fruit to life eternal. That both he that sows or plants and he that reaps or harvests may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestow no labor, other men labored and you are entered into their labors. Here's what Jesus is saying. The sow and the reaper not only work together, but one day they're going to rejoice together and receive their own rewards. So let's say you have been witnessing to a particular individual for a long time, and, and, and Donnie's the one who has the opportunity there to see them come to Christ. Guess what? It wasn't Donnie that did it anyway, was it? And it wasn't you that did it anyway. You were sowing, Donnie may have been watering, God's the one who gave the growth. And so there, there is no such thing here as isolated ministry. We're all connected. There, we, this is a network of ministry because every worker in God's field enters into the labors of others. Every man's going to receive his own reward according to his own labor. And what people may think of our ministry is not important. What God may think is of supreme importance. So we labor together in ministry. It can't be one man. It has to be a team effort. Not one of us, especially the one standing up here this morning, has all the gifts. Not one of us is omnicompetent. If you think you are, then try to do the things that you're not very good at and you're going to realize very quickly you fall, fall apart quickly. No one can have all the gifts, all the strengths. Church. There is a team effort of planting and watering. And it is a team with all kinds of different parts, but one purpose. So when Paul says in verse 8, he that plants and he that waters are one, what he means by that is we are united in purpose. But God uses different gifts and different people and different personalities. You are going to be able to lead people to Christ and disciple people uh, in Christ that I will not be able to connect with and vice versa. God wants to see increase in His field. He wants each local church to produce the fruit. Fruit of the Spirit, holiness, fruit of giving, fruit of good works, praise to the Lord, people one to Christ, people growing in Christ. And yeah, there might be numbers with it. But it's God who makes that growth happen. Look in verse 9a. For we are laborers together with God, we are laborers together with God. That 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 um, idea of laborers together with God means this: we're working together under God. We're working together under God. In other words, God's the master, and all of us are nothing more than a team that's working under His power. <clears throat> and yet, with all this, with this united purpose, God still knows our abilities and capabilities, doesn't He? Which is why he says in verse 8, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his what? His own labor. His own labor. To me, that's an encouragement. Um, And Jesus illustrates this in his parable in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 and verse 12. And 
And he, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds, which is a certain amount of, of money, and said to them, occupy or do transact my business, is what that word means, till I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass when he was returned, having received the kingdom, that he commanded those servants to be called to him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds. And he said to him, Well, you good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, have you authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise, it be you also over five cities. Another came saying, Lord, behold, here is your pound, which I have laid up in a napkin, wrapped it up. For I feared you because you were an austere or harsh man. You take up that which you laid not down and reap that which you did not sow. And he says to him, out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. God judges us according to our capabilities, doesn't he? In chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, he's going to say the most important thing, servants of God, is that you be found faithful. That you are planting on watering in God's power. Finally, letter D, we're God's fellow workers, verse 9 says. You're God's field, you're God's building. Leaders are simply team workers in the field and the building that God owns. So right here, the, the whole paragraph summarized with these words. Notice the word that's repeated. And there is this idea that's all through this section, verses 5 through 9. And it is God, God, God. Look at verse 9 again. With God, our gods, our gods. The church, its ministry, Paul and Apollos, everything is God's. He's the, stu- he's, he's the supreme master. And so it's absolutely not permissible to say, well, I belong to Paul. Or I belong to Pastor Who. Since the only legitimate legitimate slogan here is we all belong to God. And so when he says we are God's fellow workers, he doesn't mean here in the original language that he and Apollos and others are co-workers of God, although we participate with God in his mission. And there are other passages that do teach this. In other words, it's not as though he, Apollos, and the other workers are on the same level with God. Rather, he means that he and Apollos and any other workers are simply fellow workers, simply servants, co-workers who are owned by God, servants of God, used by God. We're fellow workers, Paul says, and we're God's fellow workers. So to be a servant of Jesus Christ and to be one of God's workers is the same thing. It is the same thing. And so Paul gives this illustration, this analogy here as a whole that lays out a very key truth in church life that the Corinthians are ignoring. Christian leaders are only servants of Christ and they're not to be given the allegiance that is reserved for God alone. It's not that Paul doesn't have gratitude or thankfulness to himself or other workers that's appropriate. What Paul is finding wrong is fawning over leaders. Or a defensive attachment to one particular leader. 
a quarreling or, or jealousy, making too much of one person, giving that person godlike status. And friends, I'm going to be honest with you. We have seen that in churches. And what comes out of that is abuse. One man who thinks that he is above the level of being uh, 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 of any accountability. And what Paul is saying here is that we need to think a little bit soberly here. Let's get this in perspective. You are nothing. I am nothing. God is all. And the fullness of God is shown perhaps through his servants, but it is shown through his servants so that the field says, God, you give growth and praises God. There's no Christian leader that is to be venerated or adulated here with a devotion that is reserved for God alone. That's foolishness. It's foolishness. We are all only servants. We are fellow workers. We are gods. And friends, whatever form ministry takes on, however it might look in different generations and different cultures, you can be certain about the nature of ministry. The forms may look differently. The nature of ministry that does not change is this. It is a servanthood. It is servant leadership of the kind, of the type, of the way of Jesus Christ himself and his apostles. There is no other paradigm. So when you see ministries that depart from that, understand that something has started to happen. That is not in line with Scripture. If you see this start to happen in our church, you need to raise your hand, you need to ring the bell, you need to say, no, it is servant leadership that is to be the way that God works. And Paul's points here need to be underlined, doubly highlighted here, both for those who are in so-called full-time ministry and those who are maybe not in full-time ministry in the sense that we tend to think of that. Every one of us is servants and ministers of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that clear. And Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says it is, the, it is the, 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 the task of God's leaders to equip the saints, equip the believers to do the work of the ministry. But in this passage, there also is a difference here that is laid out between those who are recognized ministers of God's, um, of God's field and those who are not recognized leaders. And what Paul is saying is this. The church belongs to the Lord in Him alone. And its servants must function in the church as servants. And those who are in charge, whether they are on a board or whatever, may tend to think of the church as theirs. And they may say this is Christ's church and pay lip service to that. But they operate the way the world operates because it is not their church. This is Jesus' church. He died for it. He died for his bride. And the church does not only not just belong to, uh, does, does not belong to the leaders who God has pointed over it. The church also does not belong to the, to the congregation. It doesn't. It doesn't belong to those who have been here the longest. It doesn't belong to those who have given the most money. It doesn't belong to those who have uh, the, the, the most uh, amazing gifts. 
No, there are, there, the, the, the church belongs to Jesus. Its structures, its attitudes, its decisions, its nature of ministry, everything flows out of that focus. Because servant leadership is required. Because servanthood is the basic stance of a follower of Jesus Christ who has been crucified with Christ. The Christ who became a servant. Who was obedient even unto death. Even a death on the cross. So that means a couple things here. Everything has to be done out of love to serve others. And I don't mean sloppy love. I mean a desire to sincerely help people. What really helps them. And what you do must be done out of love. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 will tell us later on. And it must be done, 1 Corinthians 14.23 says, all things must be done to build up the body. So that gives a little bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a way to analyze whether or not you are a servant of Jesus Christ. Number one, are you doing it out of love, sincere desire to serve? And number two, is it building up the body? Is it? Sometimes we can hold on to the things we've always done and not be, op- not be ready to open them, open them up to others because of fear or attempts to control it. And when we do that, We've forgotten that the church doesn't belong to Jamie. The church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. God has a whole church. It's His church. We're just insignificant tools. We're not the master. We grow in grace. We see ministry as His work. We see His servants as His servants. And we align our lives with this properly. Um, In his book, Zealots, uh, Dave Gibbons reflects on the nature of True success as a leader with the story of Charlotte's Web. Charlotte's Web is a, I mean, right here in Maine, right? Uh, beautiful little story here by E.B. White about this spider named Charlotte who lives in the barn just above the stall of a pig named Wilbur. And Wilbur is concerned that once he grows fat enough, the farm is going to turn him into bacon. And that's a valid concern, isn't it? <laughs> My daughter Caden summarized the story of, of, of Charlotte's Web as um, Wilbur's going to get eaten, and that's not good for pigs. When she was two or three, that's how she summarized it. Charlotte and Wilbur, they developed this friendship, and as Wilbur grows larger, Charlotte is using all of her resources to rescue Wilbur. And she writes messages in the web to convince the farm owners that Wilbur is a pig worth Saving And the story builds to this final chapter in the book called The Moment of Triumph. So what was Charlotte's moment of triumph? Well, as the story draws to, the clo- to a close, Charlotte the spider has lived out her lifespan of a spider. And she's dying. Wilbur the pig is being judged at the county fair in a pig contest. And she can hear the roar of applause for Wilbur. And she knows that he wins a special prize, and so his life is spared. But her great joy is found in knowing that her life has meant the success of another, her close friend Wilbur. No one's going to remember her, all the things she's done. Wilbur's going to live on. She's made sacrifices, but she is satisfied, having loved her friend in life and death. And so it is with Christian ministry. Leadership is about fading. 
10 out of 10 leaders die and leave. And they're gone. And they're forgotten. Elijah, as powerful as he was, was succeeded by Elisha. Paul, 2 Timothy, says, I have finished. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, who is a German Moravian who um, pioneered one of the large missionary movements in the 1700s, said this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And it is enough. Leadership is about fading, Dave Gibbons says. The great ones willingly move into irrelevance. And that's okay. So how do you like that for an ending? (laughs) Right? It's okay. You know why it's okay? Because God receives the glory. And so church leaders and church ministry is to be God-centered. And our task is to be faithful. Let's pray.